Well, this morning I have the privilege of uh, being up here and, and preaching. Pastor Jeff is uh, taking the month off, and so instead of continuing in our study through the book of Luke, we're going to be going back to the book of Esther. And uh, I get the whole month to talk about Esther, which is nice, because it's hard when it's kind of a sermon here, a sermon there. Uh, so hopefully we'll uh, get some momentum as we go through this book. Um, so if you do have your Bible, turn to the book of Esther. And we are continuing on the theme. If you look up there on the wall, it says veiled sovereignty. And really, um, that idea of veiled sovereignty is, is seen throughout this book, uh, especially today, though, I think we'll hopefully uncover how even when it seems like God may be most absent, He is most present. And even when it seems like things are, are beyond His control, they're still under His control. Every good book has a point where the adventure begins. Uh, one of my favorite fiction books to read are the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, that trilogy. Um, I remember the first time I read it, my father, actually, encouraged me to uh, read those books. But he said something interesting to me. He said, you just have to push through like the first couple of chapters. Because if you've ever read those books, they, they start out kind of slow. Um, they start out about talking, talking about hobbits and how they live in the ground, and they talk about their houses and different customs of hobbits and stuff. And it's tempting to want to just put the book down in the first chapter and go, well, that was boring. I don't see what all the fuss is about. Um, but if you get through those first couple of chapters, then the adventure starts, and uh, there's conflict, and there's great, great stuff. So I don't want to ruin it for you. Read them. They're good books. My wife Carly, on the other hand, um, has started reading some books by Terry Blackstock. She really likes that author. And those books are kind of the opposite. They tend to just boom, start out with a punch. Like, uh, Carly will tell me she started reading a book and she's like, man, it's the first chapter and already somebody's been murdered or there's been an explosion or there's a fire or there's something and it's just like, boom, right away, you're, you're hooked. But the commonality is that there, there's, in any good story, in any good book, there's there's a conflict, or there's an adventure, or there's something that has to be resolved. And when we come to Esther chapter 3, this is where the adventure begins. We've already seen um, and been introduced to some of the characters in this book. Uh, we have King Ahasuerus, who is a bit of a flake in many ways, and is pretty capricious in the things that he decides. We have Esther, who is caught up uh, in all of these schemes and all of these plans of King Ahasuerus and ends up as the queen. And then we have Mordecai, who is her uncle, who has cared for her, um, and who up until the end of chapter two was kind of just playing a background role. He was there, he was advising, uh, he was caring for Esther, 
but now he's going to get caught up in the mix too. So let's begin by reading our portion of scripture this morning, and then we'll get into the, the details of it. I'm going to back up to uh, chapter 2, verse 21, but I'm going to start reading from there and continue on through uh, Esther chapter 3. So uh, read along with me. Esther 2, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, they that, may, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews." And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the of King Hazwirus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and 
to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here we have the conflict. The thing that that needs to be solved, there's uh, basically a death warrant out for the people of Israel. But before we get into that, will you join me in prayer? Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us for uh, our edification so that we can grow closer to you, so that we can know you more, so that we can see the truth of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that as we uh, consider your word, that you will help us to understand, that you will help us to see how it applies to our lives. And Lord, I pray for myself that I would speak clearly, that I would be faithful to your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in all of our hearts and minds and help us to know you more through this. We ask it in your name. Amen. So, I have to apologize for those of you note takers out there who may have gone to the website to uh, get the main point and the bullets for the outline. Um, I'm a little rusty at doing this, and I didn't get that to uh, Kristen this week, so I apologize for that. But I do have uh, a main point and an outline, so I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, the main point, the thing that you should remember in all of this is, is pretty simple. Main point is, God is there in the midst of trouble. Remember who he is. I'll say it again. God is there in the midst of trouble. Remember who he is. That's so important for us uh, in every aspect of our lives, but we'll see how in particular this is important for the Jews uh, in these circumstances that they're in. And the outline for this uh, passage is, is fairly simple. Three points. First point is sin, past and present. And that is found in verses one through six. Sin, past and present. The second point is plotting the future. And that's verses seven through 15. And then my final point is a question. Who's in charge? And we're gonna go back to verse 12 to look at that. So sin, past and present, verses one through six, plotting the future, verses seven through 15. And who's in charge? Verse 12. So the first point there, sin, past and present. When we start to uh, read through this chapter, chapter 3, one thing should kind of strike us. I backed up when I I read the scripture into chapter 2 because at the end of chapter 2, something kind of uh, crazy happened. Mordecai discovered that there was a plot to kill King Hasuerus, and he let Esther know, and Esther let the king know, and he searched it out and found it to be true and uh, took care of the people who were 
uh, plotting that, and it says that uh, he recorded all of this in the king's journals or accounts, and you kind of expect, like, oh, hey, this is good stuff, right? This is good. Mordecai, he found this out. He let the king know. You're kind of expecting that something good is going to happen to Mordecai, right? But then you get to verse 1, and it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. So instead of Mordecai being praised and honored and rewarded for his work, uh, we have this guy, Haman, who kind of comes out of nowhere. And he is promoted. Now, we don't know exactly. There, there may have been time between the whole plot and, that, and its discovery and this promotion of Haman the Agagite, but still, literary, when, when you're looking at this and reading through the book of Esther, you expect something good to happen to Mordecai, and it doesn't. Instead, Haman the Agagite is promoted, the son of Hamadatha, and he is advanced, and his throne is set above the officials who were with him. Now, like I said, the, the first point there is sin, past and present, and this guy Haman, fits into that idea. Why? Because he is an Agagite. That is a descendant of Agag. Now, there are some who say, no, that's the city that he's from, but I, I believe that this is pointing out that he is a descendant of King Agag. And how many of you uh, kind of recognize that name? Anyone? I see a few hands there. I'm sure all of you people at home are raising your hands. Um, Agag, his whole family line shouldn't even be around. If you remember uh, your Old Testament history in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Agag was the Amalekite king that Saul was supposed to go take care of. Uh, the Amalekites have a long history with the people of Israel. In fact, in Exodus chapter 17, we see how the Amalekites were the first people uh, to oppose the Israelites in their journey to the promised land. In that chapter, Exodus 17, uh, they say, basically, who do you guys think you are? And, and they go to war against the Israelites as they're journeying towards the promised land. And ever since that time in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites and the Israelites uh, were at odds. They did not like each other. Not only that, but the Amalekites were part of the, the Canaanites in general and were idol worshipers, uh, were very unrighteous in many of the things that they did. So they were not only against the people of Israel, but they were against God in all that they did. And it got to the point in 1 Samuel 15 where, where God just said, okay, Saul, go. You need to take care of these guys once and for all. Don't spare anybody. Destroy it. And King Saul went, and he destroyed most of the things, but they kind of kept back the best of the flocks and the best of the goods and they were supposed to destroy all of the people, but they didn't. They brought King Agag back, and 
it may be that they left other people alive too, because how else would there be descendants of this guy? And then you have the, the story where Samuel comes in and says, Saul, did you do what God said? And Saul says, yep, sure did. Hmm, well then why do I hear sheep? And he finds out that in fact, Saul didn't do what the Lord had commanded, and then he takes care of what should have been done. All that to say, Haman is from the line of Agag. And so we're immediately, or we should be immediately kind of transported back to, oh, the Amalekites, these are bad guys. They're against God, they're against God's people. And oh no, we got one here in Susa. And not only do we have one, but he's been promoted to basically second in command. His throne has been put above all other thrones in the kingdom, except for Ahasuerus, of course, but he's in charge of a lot. He's been put in a, in a place of power, and for the Jews, that's kind of a scary thing. So Haman the Agagite, he is in charge, and a decree is also made by King Ahasuerus that everybody bow down and pay homage to Haman. Now, this is where there's, again, a lot of kind of different ideas, but Mordecai doesn't do this. He doesn't bow down. He doesn't pay homage to uh, Haman like the rest of the people. And at first it goes unnoticed, but then more and more people start to realize like, hey, we're bowing down and we're paying homage, but what's Mordecai doing? He's not doing this, why not? And so they go and they, they ask him, hey, why don't you do this? And it's not exactly clear whether or not Mordecai gives them a direct answer like, this is why I'm not, but somewhere in that conversation, it's stated that he is of Jewish ancestry. Well, he continues in his rebellion against the king's command to pay homage towards Haman, and eventually the, the other officers and stuff have enough, and they go to Haman and they say, hey, have you noticed that Mordecai doesn't bow, doesn't pay homage to you? And this infuriates Haman. He can't handle it. Are you kidding? Somebody dare not pay homage to me? And we see his pride arise, and we see with that his hatred arise. And when he finds out that uh, Mordecai is of the Jewish people, uh, an evil plot starts in his head. Because he's so concerned with his own pomp and circumstance, and he's so concerned with his own reputation that he's mad that Mordecai is not giving him proper respect, but he's not just mad, he is, he's raging, <laughs> and he doesn't want to just get back at Mordecai, he wants to get Mordecai and everyone associated with him. So he says, not only do I want Mordecai dead, but I want all of his people, the Jews, dead. Now again, I wish this were just stated 
in the text, but it's not. But I wonder how much history, when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, I wonder how much history that brought back to Haman. I mean, Haman had to remember the Jews. He had to remember the history of the Amalekites and, and their conflict with the Jews and the fact that, that he's in Susa shows that somehow he's been displaced from his homeland too, but that, that old sin, that old conflict rises up in him, and you can't help but think that Haman goes, ha-ha, yes, this is my opportunity to get back at the people of Israel. They tried to wipe us out. <laughs> well, wait till they get a load of this. I'm going to wipe them out. And so this, this evil plot is hatched uh, by Haman that he is not only going to take care of Mordecai, but he's going to take care of all of the people of Israel. And we, the reason that I've titled this this section sin past and present is because those sins of not fully following God's uh, directions and command way back in Exodus or way back in Samuel are, are now coming to light again. That conflict is, is still there. That hatred is still there. Did Mordecai sin in not paying homage? There's a lot of speculation on that. I tend to think that maybe his pride was was involved in that decision too. Because you have other instances of Israelites paying homage and respect to the kings, and in fact, what had Mordecai just done? He had just saved the evil king, Ahasuerus, right? So he wasn't necessarily against, actively against the, the king and, and the kingdom. He was actually working for the king and the kingdom. So why didn't he bow? I tend to think there may have been some sinful attitude in there. And his sin combined with Haman's sin erupts into this plan to kill all of the Jews. So the second uh, point in your outline, uh, plotting the future, basically the, the rest of this chapter goes over uh, Haman's evil, <laughs> evil plan to get rid of all the Jews. So in verse 7, he says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, when I first read that, I thought, wow, that's a lot of casting lots, because I, I read that as saying they did it for twelve months. That's not what this is saying. It's basically saying they, they got together and maybe had like a calendar or something laid out, and they cast some sort of lots to decide which month, which day this evil plot would be best uh, suited to, to occur on. And in the casting of the lots, the month came up and the day came up. Now, there have been a lot of people who, uh, who look at this and say, well, how silly is that? I mean, who would make plans to destroy a people and then plan it for like a year in advance? Like, that's kind of silly. Why would you do that? 
the text must be wrong, right? Well, no. That idea that this is, this is a silly thing to do and why would Haman plan this for about a year out, that's a very Western, modern way of thinking about this. It, it was common for kings, it was common for nations to decide things like that by casting lots, by seeking the God's approval. Um, many decisions in that time were made in that way, and so this fits right in. Isn't it interesting, though, that they cast lots for this? And there's a verse in uh, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Interesting, huh? It just happened to be 12 months in advance. Just happened to be? Maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe God was at work in this. I think he was. I agree with what Proverbs says. Even though they cast lots, every decision is from the Lord. He's in control even of these little dice or whatever it was that they're rolling to figure out the month and the time when this would happen. Well, Haman's got his day. He's got his motive. He knows he wants to get rid of the Jews. He just lacks one thing. Even though he's second in command, he doesn't have complete authority to make this a binding decree in all of the land. So he's got to go to the king. So that's exactly what he does in verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, uh, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman goes, and he makes his case to King Ahasuerus, and he says, basically, there's a people that you need to get rid of. They're scattered everywhere throughout your kingdom, they have these weird rules and these weird laws that they obey, and they're really not to your benefit. Oh, good king Ahasuerus. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't even name the people group. He doesn't tell them what these rules and regulations are. He just says, hey, we need to get rid of these people. Now, you would think that a good king would ask a question. Well, who are these people? What are they doing? Why are they not to my prophet? But we kind of have the, the stage set knowing that King Ahasuerus isn't the most thoughtful king. <laughs> he's kind of capricious. He's kind of arbitrary in the things that he does. And we're going to see that real soon here. So Haman continues, verse 9, he says, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So Haman sweetens the deal a little bit. He's going to throw in 10,000 talents of silver, which is a, a crazy amount of silver. It's like 375 tons of silver. Now, I don't think that Haman had that just laying around his house. So even this part of the, uh, 
the story to King Ahasuerus is, is a bit exaggerated. Is, um, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm going to give you a, a bunch of money too. Just let me take care of it. I'll get him out of your hair. It'll be no big deal. And you're going to get a lot of money from it. He's, he's making this a really sweet deal for the king. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So the king agrees. <laughs> Lots of money. People aren't good for me. Yeah, sure. Let's get rid of them. Here's my ring. And basically what he's doing is he's handing over his authority to Haman and saying, yeah, take care of him. I like it. Good plan. And just the, you know, if you stop and think about the gravity of this situation, it's amazing that he just, yeah, okay, go do it. I mean, he's ordering the extermination of, a, of an entire people group. You know, that, I don't even know if we can fully grasp how crazy that is. I mean, that would be like the, the president of the United States saying, hey, just so you guys know, in this month, on this day, we're going to kill everybody of Swedish descent. I'm a Peterson. I don't know a whole lot about my background, but I know I have a Swedish heritage. You know, like, that would be crazy. If I put myself in that situation to have that announcement come through the TV or the internet or something, hey, all you Swedes, you're going to die. How would I react? How would you react? What do we, uh, Vernet, that's uh, German? Yeah, there you go, all Germans. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's crazy. And the people are scattered throughout the provinces, so this word is going to go out throughout all the provinces. And um, let's look a little bit more at exactly what Haman says. Verse 11, uh, the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Uh, so he just says, do what you want. Go for it, Haman. And verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It is written in the name of King Hasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Not just enough to kill them, then you got to destroy them. And don't just kill them and destroy them, but you got to annihilate them. Gone. Every last one of them, every last bit of them. Oh, and in case you thought that maybe we should leave some, no. The young and the old, the women and the children, every one. Annihilated, destroyed, killed. Oh, and don't even leave their stuff around. Plunder it. Take it. It's yours. We want no trace of these people left. Kill them, destroy them, annihilate them. Young and old, women and children, 
Take all their stuff. It's yours. I, you know, again, it's like, I just, the gravity of that is hard to imagine. Ordering the extermination of a people. And not only is he saying, hey, the king's officials are going to come around and do this, but no, this is a command to the people of the country. You guys get involved in this. You guys kill your neighbor who's a Jew. Take all their stuff. The person you've been doing business with, are they a Jew? There you go. Kill them. Take their stuff. Find out where they live. Kill their family. Craziness. And this goes out to everybody. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction. So everybody is getting word of this. And, you know, news traveled slower back then than it does now. They didn't have the internet. But one of the things that uh, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, other empires were known for was their, their mail system or their delivery system. They had couriers who, it was kind of like the Pony Express. They would get the news out fast. So in a short time, all of the kingdom knows this decree to get rid of the Jews. And, and the really gut-wrenching part is they have 11 months to prepare for that. For the Jews, 11 months to go, are you kidding? And for everybody else, 11 months to go, either, are you kidding? Or, <laughs> all right. So this decree goes out, the couriers go out, and Haman and King Ahasuerus, pretty proud of themselves, what do they do? Sit down for a drink. And it just shows the arbitrary, capricious nature of the king and the hatred, the true hatred of Haman, that he just sits down for a drink. He's just decreed the annihilation of a people. And he's like, sweet, sit down with the king for a drink. However, we see not everybody does that. What happens in the city of Susa? Verse 15, the very last phrase, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Other versions say that the, the people were perplexed. There was like, <laughs> what? The herald comes out and gives this decree and people are just dumbfounded. I mean, if the king just says, ah, yeah, get rid of the Jews, then what's to say he's not going to say, ah, get rid of these people too. Get rid of these people too. They're a blot in my kingdom. I want them gone. This is not the way to instill confidence in the kingdom. And the Jews had been commanded to 
even though they were taken into captivity and they were away from their home, but they were commanded in Jeremiah to work for the benefit of the city, and they had done that. They had gotten involved in the kingdom. They were involved in many of the affairs that, that were going on, and so it wasn't like, oh, you know, those people over there, this was literally your neighbor. This was your coworker. This was the person who watches your kids while you go do something, you know? They were there. They were a part of the culture. And so understandably, the city is thrown into confusion. And while everybody's trying to figure all this out, the king says, hmm, bring me my favorite wine. <laughs> and where's God? Right? Because what did I say the, the main point was? The main point is that God is not near us in troubles. No. The main point is that God is there in the midst of trouble. Remember who he is. So now we come back to the best verse in this chapter. Esther 3, verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And all God's people say, amen, right? Why do I go back to verse 12, 13th day of the first month? What? What's so significant about that? Anybody? Test your Jewish history. How about the 14th day of the first month? Or the 10th day of the first month? Because the 10th day of the first month was when they picked the lamb. And then the 14th day is where they sacrifice the Passover lamb and celebrate the Passover. And the 13th day is the day before Passover. And what does Passover represent? God's salvation. And so on the very eve of the celebration of God's salvation, what happens? Bad news. Horrible news. Death, destruction, annihilation, and yet, what are the Jews supposed to do the very next day? Celebrate God's deliverance. Celebrate life through a sacrifice. Celebrate the fact that because of the blood of the lamb, they were saved. Do you see God in this? Hopefully, the Jewish people did. And hopefully, as we read this, we do see God in this because he is there in the midst. And the second point there of the main point of this is God is there in the midst of trouble. Remember who he is. He is the God of the Passover. He is the God who saves. He is the God who has, or 
They don't know the specifics of, of Jesus, but they're looking forward to the Messiah who will come and who will take away the debt of sin that they owe. And we look back on this and know that Jesus was the Lamb who was slain for us. And by way of application and by way of, uh, you know, seeing Christ in this passage, the people were sentenced to death, but wait, there's the God of the Passover, the God of salvation there with them. We are sentenced to death because of our sins. We are guilty. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one who paid our debt so that we might live. And even though this is way before Jesus, the people were looking for the Messiah and should have had a clue in the celebration of the Passover that God has saved us before, it could happen again. Even though this horrible news has just come down. And, you know, that gospel message there, it, it's, it's hidden in some sense because when I first read this and I read over that date, I was like, whatever, 13th of the first month. But then as I did more study, I realized like, oh, 13th of the first month, Passover, lamb, blood, gospel. You know, and this is, I think the message here is that God is present even in the worst circumstance. He's there, and he's reminding, who am I? Who am I? And it's our job as, as believers, even in our worst circumstances, to remember God is there. And who is this God? And there's this beautiful picture there in the Passover for, for anyone who does not believe that's the gospel. You know, if, if you are unsaved, you have to realize that just like the people were under the sentence of death, you are under a sentence of death for your sin. And there will be hell to pay for your sin. But the grace of God is that he sent his son to die on the cross to take that punishment on himself for you. And that is the ultimate act of salvation, and that is what we all must do. And if you are sitting here and you're questioning who Jesus is and whether you really need him, you do. <laughs> we are all under that death sentence, and it's by God's grace that through faith we can simply believe that Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and we can have faith and salvation in Christ alone. And then, out of gratitude, we live our lives in the way that God pleases, in the way that he wants us to. So, here we have the plot, the conflict of this book. 
We have Haman the Agagite, an old enemy of the Jews, and he's offended, and he decides, I'm going to get rid of him. But even in all of this, in all of the sin and all of its effects and the, the worry about the future, God is there. He's present in the midst of trouble, and what the people need to do is remember who God is. And by way of application, that's what we need every day. <laughs> Whether we're in the midst of big troubles or just the small troubles of daily life, is God there with us? Absolutely. We need to remember who he is. We need to remember that he cares for us and look to him for wisdom and strength and help in time of need because that's who he is. And he loves to take care of his children. So that's where we're going to end today. We'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are with us. And Lord, uh, one of the greatest promises that we have is uh, in the Great Commission when you say, and lo, I am with you always. Lord, that we can be with you or that you can be with us through faith in Christ is just astounding. Um, it can help us when we are in time of need. So Lord, help us to... Uh, have faith in you to be encouraged by who you are. We ask this in your name. Amen.